This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. By the time I was 10, I had defined myself in such a manner that I thought I had no possibility to ever be happy, no possibility of ever having a normal life. And I thought all the things that happened to me were things I deserved, that I came from bad people, I was bad people, I would do bad things, and my life would end bad. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked Presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author David Crow wrote a memoir called The Pale-Faced Lie About His Father. Thurston Crow was a suspected killer who claimed to be a Native American while he raised his children on various reservations. David's story is a survival story, but this turned out to be a pretty controversial book, and I'll just let David explain why. So tell me where you were, where you were born, and, and what your environment was like. So I was born in 1952, and I was born about a year after my dad got out of San Quentin Penitentiary for a crime that really could have gotten him the death penalty. He fled to the Navajo Indian Reservation for two reasons. One, you could lie about being a violent felon. No one checked because they very much needed skilled labor in the 50s and 60s. They didn't have people that had the kind of education and background. And second, he thought his accomplice would never look for him there because he would be impossible to find. He was right on both counts. And my first memory is he would drive me out to the frozen tundra of the reservation and spin the car around endlessly because he, you know, it's kind of like being in a Ferris wheel on the ground. And he thought it was funny. And I did too, even though I'm bouncing all over the car, hitting my head. But my first memory, and this is really where the book begins, is we have to get rid of your mother. She's crazy. And if you grow up with her, you'll be crazy too. We have to get rid of her and I'm going to need you to go along. He is right now, when you're a young boy, fun dad, without really having any context of what really that means. Well, he was super powerful, very strong. He knew more than anybody else. At least we always believed that. But even early, he scared me and he wanted to because he really wanted me to feel like he was the only force I needed to believe in. Like he used to tie me to a tree so I wouldn't run off. Of course, he wanted me to try to get out and run off. He would throw me up in the air and catch me, but sometimes he'd let me hit the ground just because he Ugh. wanted me to only trust him and to believe that crime was the right thing and that's the law of the jungle and, you know, everybody's your enemy and you got to look after yourself and you've got to live by the code of violence. And that's how he felt about life. Where did your dad come from? How did he turn out like that? Let's start there. His name is Thurston Crow. Yeah, I mean, he had a tough life. You know, he grew up in the Dust Bowl and his father was illiterate. The only time his father ever left Texas was going to World War One, and he fought for two or three years, got himself mustard gas, came home. But he's a very angry guy. 
and he lost everything in the depression and the dust bowl. My dad lived with his mom and dad in cars outside under bridges. He had to pick cotton 12 hours a day sometimes. His dad beat him with a wet rope. So my dad grew up very violent, very angry. He did something of extreme violence when he thought someone crossed him. And that's how I wound up in San Quentin. Tell me about San Quentin. So you're not even born yet. He meets your mom. So they have a courtship. Is that what happens? He was 19. She was 15. I mean, it's right after the end of World War II, 1946. My mom got pregnant immediately. A guy made a stupid comment about how pretty she was and wishes he could date her. My dad comes home, hears about it, gets his boss, who's his best friend. And so they lure the guy who did it out and beat him to what they thought was his death. And he would have bled out and died, but his wife found him with just a few minutes to go, or else I probably would not be here. Dad thought that he did the right thing. You know, if somebody says something wrong to you, you beat him to death. If somebody crosses you, you fight until one of you dies. I mean, he just grew up believing that, feeling that. I don't think he ever changed that. He's very, very intelligent guy, amazing IQ, but he had a chip on his shoulder the size of a building and an inferiority complex you can't even imagine. And this profound sense that the world had done him wrong, had screwed him. Somebody stole his future and I think hated his mom and dad because he felt like they did that to him. But those were very, very tough times. No one had anything. And he was just a very angry guy from the start. He loved to fight. He would tell me about other murders that he had committed. He got away with. He would tell me stories about what the prisoners would talk about in the yard in San Quentin. He would tell me about all these guys that killed people and got away with it. And he's telling you this as kind of a veiled threat. You know, he obviously is a very powerful person. He was. He was built like an NFL linebacker. He was very intimidating. Whenever anybody confronted him, if they didn't withdraw, he would have he would have beat them to their death. I mean, he had no off button and he had no sense of right and wrong and no sense of letting something go or like if somebody cut him off, you know, we've all had this. Somebody cut you off. Maybe they give you the finger. They do something stupid. And 99% of us will let it go, drop our car back and avoid people like that. He'd follow the guy home and try to kill him and maybe his dog and maybe burn the house down. I mean, he just was a guy who felt like if you cross me, I'm going to get even plus some and there's no end to this game. You grew up in a reservation. Is that? Do you tell me a little bit about that too, where we are in time with what location and what the reservation life was like for you? Reservation was a very tough place for me in the beginning. The pale face lie is really a metaphor for the whole book. But dad told us we were Cherokees, sister tribe to the Navajos, and we grew up believing that. But I could tell my Navajo classmates didn't think it. But it was a tough place. And we lived in a part of the reservation where white people aren't allowed to live. White people are allowed to live in these little compounds with doctors and teachers were and they were surrounded by barbed wire and cattle guards. So we grew up inside of that and the Navajo kids didn't like us. Their parents had been through the boarding schools where their heads were shaved. They had to eat lye soap and they were told every day, we have to kill the Indian to save the man. I went to school with their kids. Their kids hated us. But what I learned over time when they knew that I wasn't going to move away, we became friends. Once those Navajo kids started calling me Gagi, which is the Navajo word for crow, I became one of them. It took a long time to get there. But once I did, they treated me exactly like I was one of them. I don't think I've ever been treated better by anyone anywhere in my entire life. So was your father a Native American? Was your mother Native American or, or neither? The answer has to be 
the truth, which is no. But one of the things that this book is about, and a lot of people I think can identify this, families grow up with myths, you know, many of them completely false, beliefs that are completely false, and assumptions about life that are completely false. And dad wanted to believe he was a Cherokee because he didn't want to believe, and forgive my expression, that he came from white trash, depression era, dust bowl. He didn't want to believe that. And the Cherokees were powerful warriors and people he respected and identified. But there were also a minority that had been persecuted, picked on. And he identified with all of that and turned himself into a Cherokee in his head. And over time, I learned he was lying about that and other things. Because when he would lie, his voice got real loud. His eyes bugged out. His chest would puff out. And you could tell that was pure lies. But he projected himself into that as a way of feeling sorry for himself, as a way of feeling superior, even though people didn't treat him that way, and as a way of kind of being a living martyr. So it sounds like it. So he met your mom and your mom, it sounded like, had mental health struggles. Is that right? Very serious mental health problem. Believe it or not, she's still alive. My mom is almost 91. And I would say she's like a somewhere between six and 10 in her mentality with 80 years experience of being very angry and very much a child. But when she was young, she was beautiful. And my dad thought that when he met her at 15. And sometimes that's all it takes. But then everything unravels when they couldn't have been more opposite in terms of their mentality and what he wanted out of life. And my mom had a very, very tough life. And he was a huge reason for a bunch of it. Well, let's start with that then. So in the beginning, I just thought he was this super powerful guy. And what he was teaching me is what every dad taught every kid, right? Which is get away with whatever you can. Trust me. And if you do something wrong that I don't like, I'll beat you to death. And if you do something makes me proud, I'll clap. And so we kind of grew up in this crazy environment. I guess by the time I was six or seven, I could tell some of it was lies because I could always tell his persona changed entirely. And that always bothered me. So the people who worked with him were afraid of him, but they also respected his brain power because he had a lot. But by the time I hit nine, 10 years old, he was teaching me how to steal tools from the Navajos and for me to be his lookout. He was explaining to me why sometimes killing is the only answer. You have to live by your own rules. And eventually started telling me stories about San Quentin and about murders and about violence he had done. But always it was justified, right? And he'd say, mm -hmm. an army is just a big group of murders. The FBI is just organized murders, CIA. And you're on a reservation, right? In California, is that where you all were? No, Arizona, New Mexico. Your father was saying you're Cherokee. Do people realize that he is not Native American when you guys are living on this reservation? I have two or three theories. I think, yes, the Navajos knew. They're smart people. If you had a skill set they needed, they would tolerate darn near anything. And so dad was smart and he worked hard and people put up with it. I don't think it takes you long to know when you have a strong, violent person who's going to get in a fight with you if you disagree. And he wound up pushing a lot of what I think legitimate criticism away because it isn't worth it, right? Stay away. Are your father and mother married? Are they together at this point? And how is he treating her? Well, he's treating her terrible. They stayed together until, until he tried to kill her and left her homeless. My mother was just a poor wounded soul. She would have stayed with him, but she really had nothing going in her life. And she saw him as the only thing, right? And she had four kids and she had a very, very tragic life, a very, very sad life. And, and it's still sad, long suffering in every way. 
So tell me what is the next big event? You're six or seven. Your dad's a liar. Your mom is miserable. Your dad is throwing his weight around everywhere, but he's valued on the reservation, which is why he's there. When is the first time he involves you in his crimes? We start going to warehouses on the reservation. These are huge government Quonset huts made out of aluminum siding material. And he is the um, safety officer and he keeps charge of inventory. So he would wind up stealing expensive tools like electric tools and power saws and things like that that were really very valuable. And he would fence them to a group of Mexican men who then sold them underground. And there was so much inventory on a reservation. There's so many warehouses that he could steal stuff from various ones and no one ever figured it out. They didn't keep good inventory. He never stole so much from any one place that it was noticed. But I was his lookout. We had a signal. If somebody was coming along where you're looking at a flat area that might be miles and miles from the nearest town. So if a car's coming or a truck's coming, what you way you know it is you see the dust. If I thought a truck or a car looked dangerous or something to think about, I threw one rock up against the warehouse. And that just meant, beware, I might need to signal you that something's wrong. If I threw two rocks, it meant stop what you're doing and pay attention and get to the door. If I threw three rocks in a row, it meant run for the car, we've got trouble. So he taught me this system and he taught me how to look for license tag numbers and how to look for suspicious cars. And and really, he was just a crime mentor. And then over time, he would tell me about murders he knew about, murders he committed. And of course, all this fascinated me because I'm a kid. I learned how to trick him into telling me things he didn't want to tell me, like I would know how to say something that would make him say something else. And if he was in a talkative mood, he would tell you incredible things about what he had done And they were all bad. He never told anybody else in our family, but he and I were crime buddies. And we spent lots of time alone in the car because there are huge distances between these warehouses on a reservation. And a lot of times I would spend 8, 10, 12 hours a day with them going around the reservation stealing tools. So then when do things escalate? When do things become more violent? How old are you when you're the lookout man? Started at about eight and this went on. For a long time. So one day we're driving along, this time my younger brother and sister are in the car, and we pull up to a trailer, which turned out to be a gas station, right? On the reservation, you've got these, especially then like, you know, kind of a rusted out trailer, two pumps out front, and that's a gas station. So we pull up to this gas station and there's chicken wire in front of the trailer. And there's a giant black bear trapped in this chicken wire cage. And the guy spray painted above the trailer on wood, black bear gas station, right? This is some sort of tourist attraction. We pull up to the station. And at that point, I'm used to reading my dad's face for clues of violence because you've got to catch him before he gets extremely angry. If, if he's already angry, the blood vessel between his eyebrows bulges or his eyes are bulged out. He's too mad and you can't stop him. So I became the master of trying to read his face and try to see why he was going to be angry. So we pull up to this gas station and I see my dad roll up his sleeves, puff up his chest. The blood vessel between his eyebrows looks like a garden hose and his eyes are bugged out like a Volkswagen, which means he's about to explode. So I look over and he's in the back 
and he gets out wire clippers. And he's really angry that this poor black bear's been trapped. Like he had more compassion for animals than people. He's just a strange guy. So he goes to let the bear out and the bear's paw gets through the chicken wire. And the man who owned the gas station, he runs out, sees what my dad's doing, starts screaming at him, no, leave my bear alone. So he runs towards my dad. My dad hit him right in the nose so hard, busted his nose, busted his glasses, knocked him upside down, picked him up with one hand and held him up to the bear claw and said, I'm going to come back in an hour. If that bear's still here, he's going to eat your fat dumb behind. Threw the guy on the ground, drove off, comes back, bear's gone, the trailer's padlocked, they never opened again. Stuff like that happened every single day. So dad was just extremely angry and he was going to confront you. If you were the, in the wrong place with him, you're going to get in a fight. And so this happened all the time. You start realizing how violent he is. Do you start committing crimes besides just being the lookout guy? What happens then is he starts telling me that there's a guy from his past who's looking to kill him. He's really not afraid of his accomplice, but he's very afraid of being ambushed. We would go into nearby town on the reservation and he would make me go through the parking lots, look at all the license tags and tell me which ones don't belong. Look at vehicles, tell me which ones don't belong. Look at people and tell me which ones look suspicious, which one just look like they're passing through town or Navajo's family shopping. And he trained me to look. And whenever we go in a public place, he never sat near a window and he always looked at the door and there was always a second exit. And my job was to case the little town and I grew to learn he's looking to make sure his accomplice hadn't tracked him down. He's never worried about it in like real rural area, you know, where we on the reservation, but in town, he is very worried about it. He started telling me more and more about his criminal life. And of course, he's giving me the rosy view of it, never what really happened. But I become very much aware that he has killed a couple of guys in fights and that he was in prison for something that was really, really bad, and that he's got a guy who's trying to come kill him. And I become his confidant. The real fear I had with him was, one, we might run into the accomplice and either have to kill him or get killed, right? I mean, sort of the way dad looked at it. But he became more and more aggressive when he thought people crossed him. And so there were more and more violent outbursts, I would say. And you're in a place where there's really not a ton of law and there's a lot of problems. A lot of times he got away with these confrontations, right? He could kind of get away with it. But I was always scared that, you know, somebody would kill him or that we would be in a fight that we were going to lose or there's going to be a body on the ground. There was no one on the reservation, a teacher or anyone who you could confide in? Or did that not even occur to you at that age? When somebody is getting beaten within an inch of their life and you have an extremely violent parent, confiding in them means that that person will confront your father and you'll get beaten 10 times worse. No one who grows up in a situation like mine confides in anybody. And you don't trust adults because the ones you trusted are abusing you and they've broken you. And some do-gooding outsider is just going to get you both killed. And you know that. The Navajo Reservation, particularly then, was overwhelmed with problems, right? There's violence, there's alcoholism, there's incredible poverty, very, very tough place. When teachers came from the outside, they would get good pay and an opportunity and they'd stay a year or two. They couldn't get out of there fast enough because it's just a very, very hard place. It's like a rural ghetto. I mean, these kids have gone through very hard times. And, you know, I had a lot of teachers I loved. I had angels along the way. Some of them knew, some of them didn't. But 
no one in their right mind would get involved with my dad. And there's no way he's going to lose those kids. He's just not. We had nowhere to go. As you got older, though, did you just sort of lean even more into this lifestyle as you became a young man? Well, again, you you know, he can beat you within an inch of your life and he can also throw you on the street, which he threatened many times. It's not like social services intervene or help you in situations like this. I mean, it may be different now. You know, you have nowhere to go. And I think until uh, I fought back in my own way, and I think I never did anything so criminal that it hurt a person physically. I certainly did a lot wrong. But once I got out of the house, he still tried to control me. And a good chunk of the end of the book is how I ended that and how I fought back. But I didn't live a perfect life and I did a lot wrong. It'd be a much stronger person than me that could have pulled away from his grasp. And I'm sure they're out there. But I honestly tell you, unless you live through it, it's um, easy to criticize it. I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying it's easy to critique it. It's a much different thing to break free of it. Very, very different. I can't even imagine trying to get out of his grip. That must have been a nightmare. At what point as a young man do things become more serious for you with what he's asking you to do? I'm assuming his tasks are becoming a little bit more age appropriate for you. Is that right? Well, lots of changes. So I'm about 15 and my dad picks up a stepmother, the one he later wants to get rid of. And she's a nurse on the reservation and she's well-educated from the East. She's got property she owns on the beach in North Carolina. She convinces him that he can apply for a job with the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington. And she can get a really good job because she's a nurse and, you know, she's got a good college education. So we wind up moving for six months, we think. He gets a training opportunity in the Bureau of Indian Affairs in downtown D.C. And so we move and I hate it because I love the reservation at this point and I know it and I get to the east and we're years and years behind in school. We're very unsophisticated. Nothing makes sense to me and I don't like it. So I think we're going to move back. But we go back and forth between the reservation and the East Coast, Kensington and Bethesda, Maryland for a period of two or three years. But we eventually stay in the East. But dad's crime stuff continues. He starts fencing tools with some guys in West Virginia, and it leads to what is clearly a murder when somebody crosses he and his buddies. Can you give us any more information about that, just so people sort of understand the seriousness of your dad's crimes, that he's not just a petty criminal. He was somebody who sounds like committed murder. Can you give us any more where you feel comfortable talking about that? Sure I am, because you don't write a book like this unless you're willing to do that, right? And I'm no Superman. I never stood up to him until way at the end when it was either he's going to kill my stepmother and drag my sister into this or not. So, you know, I don't think anybody's going to give me an award for the red badge of courage, but I do think I did the right thing when it really counted. So to give you kind of an overview, so I knew that dad went in and out of the service in one year. He was born in 1927 and that class By the time they got through Navy training, Japan had surrendered. But he went through all the basic military stuff. And he got in a fight in New Orleans on leave with a guy. And they went out back. And I think dad beat him to death with his bare hands. 
and they found the guy, but the other people with him, the sailors, it was like one of those things where if you're going to go out back and fight with this guy at 3 a.m., you get what you deserve. And he would tell me these kinds of stories and two or three times where he would repeat the same story over and over where he killed somebody. And then I knew what he did to get in San Quentin, right? I mean, you don't, you're not in a maximum security prison unless you really did something that violent. And he did. So I picked up pieces of that. So when the West Virginia thing came, I knew what he was like. And I knew he had killed that guy. And I knew that he would kill anybody if he thought he could get away with it. Will you give me some more information about that? What ends up happening? One of the big pieces of this book, one I've been really criticized for and other people have I've been so critical. I knew dad was committing crimes when we moved to the eastern United States. So I'm in my sophomore, junior year in college. Dad, at this point, he runs off with women, different women all the time. My mother was long gone and he abandoned my stepmother, then came back to her. So he's living with like an 18-year-old Indian woman. He's 43 years old. They had a very, what you would expect to be a really strange relationship. He started disappearing. And she would call me once in a while at school. Name was Caroline. And say, your dad disappeared for five days from West Virginia. I don't know where he is. And these kinds of things would go on. And of course, these are patterns that I'm used to from my life. Dad would go off and steal a bunch of stuff. He had safety deposit box and PO boxes, and he would have me memorize them. So if I disappear, don't come back. You need to go find these boxes and stuff buried. I mean, we just always played this game, right? That the world's after you. And if anything happens to me, you need to come and I'll take give you instructions on who to go get and get even with. He was always like that. One day, this Caroline woman called me. She said, your dad's now been gone a week and people are calling and breathing into the phone and hanging up. And a couple of them are threatening me. And I said, well, you know, you knew what you got when you lived with him, but he's tougher than anybody and no one's going to kill him. He's going to wind up killing him. Don't worry about him. So another week later, she called and said, your dad called. You've got exactly five hours to get to Wheeling, West Virginia. I want you to go to a truck stop and there's a pay phone. Call this number. He'll meet you. It's an emergency leave now. So I did it. I get up there and it's dark at this point. I call the number. He immediately comes and meets me. We follow two guys all the way back in this dirt road, way back into the woods. And he said, we had our signal. If I see anybody, I blink the lights on three times. One's a warning. Two is look out. Three is get the hell out of there. You know, the whole thing. He and two other guys, they get a, about a six foot length of something wrapped in blue tarp and they bury it. And I'm not stupid. I know this has got to be a human. You know what I mean, what else are you burying, right? Why are you hiding? Why are we doing this? I know at this point, the human blood's a lot redder than deer blood and other blood. I know it's human blood on him. He's got blood splattered on his khakis. So they bury this guy. I drive out. These guys go off their own way and I'm driving dad back five hours to D.C. area. And we begin this epic fight, which you'll see in the book. And he starts explaining, you're a do-gooder. You you, know, you don't go along with anything. And I said, well, I ought to drive you straight to the police station, turn you in. Never doing anything with you ever again. We're done. No longer your kid. I'm not doing this. And I should drive straight to the police station right now. He grabs me by the throat and pulls me up. And he said, I could kill you with my bare hands. I own you, you stupid SOB. Just shut up and get the hell out of here. It was a big turning point for me. And your people would say, why did it come so late? But it came when it came. Every day I worried for years. But I'm not making any excuses for myself at all. Right. And so I assumed this guy was just another scumbag like he was that crossed him. 
There were ceiling tools. There were fencing tools. And I'm imagining that something really stupid happened and this guy threatened him and they decided to kill him and dad needed a way out of there. And to my knowledge, no one ever found out about it. And I never heard anything about it. And he and I never discussed it again, but it haunted me and really haunted me. Did they ever figure out who this person was? What happened? No. Oh my gosh. You really have gotten raked over the coals from the things I've read about this. People are criticizing you for this. Yeah, they're very critical of me. And I'm not, I guess my skin's no thinner or thicker than anybody else's. Publisher and even family said, you know, you need to leave this out. And I said, but you don't, you don't have an honest book. This book's an honest book. This book is all my warts, all my faults. So they're there. One of the reasons the book's done well is because of that, because of the honesty, the authenticity. And I carried these things with me. I carry them now. Bearing your soul, at least coming clean and sort of being vulnerable to people who love you and who you know is very liberating. But it's an extremely hard thing to go through. And I don't recommend it. But I also knew that when people read it and they saw the truth in it, that it could resonate for some of them and they would see it as an example of you can overcome things that you think are impossible to overcome. Tell me what happens from how old were you when this incident happened with your dad? Almost 21. What happens over the next 48 years for you? Does your dad have any other big incidences with you after the burial of this body? I get an incredibly amazing job in the political process. And it's at a place where through a reversal of fortune, my dad is actually working at a much lower level than me at the same place. And it's a complete fluke. And it sent him into an outrageous envy that you cannot imagine, right? He just goes ballistic at me and a people I work with, and he starts creating huge problems. So he fakes an accident and is able to retire on disability, but he decides that he is so angry with me, he's going to have to end my life. So what he does is he plans to murder my stepmother. Now, she's got money and land and a pension, and he thinks he can get away with anything. David, this is the nurse, is that right, who he married? Yeah, yeah. Initially at the reservation and then moved out to North Carolina to live on her property. So they've been married for... Probably 30 years at that point. He's left her a couple of times and come back, but he sets up this murder. And again, I understand my dad at this point probably better than he understands himself. So he sets up this scenario where my younger sister is going to help him. He owned and controlled her too. They're going to take my stepmother to this swampy area, land she actually owns, way back in the woods. He's going to kill her, chop her up, put concrete, sink her into this swamp. He's going to use my sister as the alibi so that she drives him to and from. He hides in the trunk so it doesn't look like he was there. My stepmother shows up to meet him and she disappears. He gets away with it. So she calls me hysterically on a Wednesday night and says, all of this is going to take place on Saturday. Your sister, right, calls you. Is that right? Right. Where did this plot take place? Where was your stepmother's property? The Outer Banks of North Carolina is about 250 miles south and east of Washington. She owned a ton of land there and she was, you know, came from a family. They weren't rich, but they inherited land back before this was a beach haven. But they owned this swampy property, too, that where no one goes. So he figures, he one, he wants rid of her, and two, he would like to have her money, which, second, he wants to get away with it. Obviously, he doesn't want to go to jail. <laughs> and third, by using my sister, he owns and controls her for life. So this is dad's MO. But when my sister called me, this is complicated for the listener, but you're true crime people. 
he knows that my sister's going to call me and he knows I'm going to try to stop it. And what he decided to do was set a trap where he can get me, kill me. And I figured this all out ahead of time and get to him before it ever gets down to the Outer Banks. I woke up at three o'clock in the morning then I told my sister, go somewhere else. Don't answer any phones. Stay with a friend. Don't go back to where you live and avoid him completely. And give me time, give me 24 hours to think this through. So I begin thinking it through and I use a lifetime of my experience and I understand why he's doing it, how he's doing it. And if he could get rid of me and my stepmother in the same day, that'd be the greatest day he ever had, like winning the lottery twice. And I know he really is that kind of guy. And I know that he knows that I will probably go straight down where my sister is. I'm going to be very predictable for him. And he's going to know how to catch me in his trap. And I realized that. And so I know that I have to get to him before he ever gets down there. And I don't want to give this part away, but a really interesting part of the book, I think, is what my thinking was, what I did, and how I went about it. So you foiled the plan, I'm assuming, because you're sitting here. Yeah, I did. He is, I'm assuming, after this, furious. Is that right, that this has been spoiled? It is. And because our family is so complicated and screwed up and every other word you can use, we kind of all pretend it never happened and go through our dysfunctional nonsense. But at some point, my dad decides he's never speaking to me again. And so we went about 15 plus years without speaking. Well, wait, how old were you when that happened? How old was he and how old were you when that started? You were an adult. Were you married? Just before marriage. It's about 27 years old. Dad needed me at some point because he was getting old and sick. And I may have gone through a process of deciding I needed to forgive all this and just move on with my life and just be a good son. And well, I've also been criticized for that. What in the world were you thinking? But I understood that unless I cleared my mind of all this, I would never be free. And that's another part of what I'm telling people. You don't, you don't forgive people because they deserve it or because they ask for it. A good person will, a bad person won't. And a really bad person will never think they did anything wrong. He's a psychopath. So I understood that. At some point, I just wanted to be right with myself. But I confronted him at one point and he said, you're a liar. You make things up. You're a revisionist. Everything about you is just weak and cowardly. I knew you'd never be much of a man. You're nothing. And I expected that. But even after that, years later, I forgave all that and decided I'm going to help him through his last couple of years before he dies. Also talked to my mother. I said, you know, you made me feel like at 10 years old that I left you to die and I was man of the house and I could have saved you. Her answer is you were and you could have and you didn't. Wow. When you grow up with that, you think it's your fault. It's a very hard thing and you have to undo that. And again, the worst letters I get are from people who never undid that damage. This has probably come up in reviews too. Did you consider turning him into police? I think you've mentioned that one time. What would that have done or why wouldn't you have done that as an adult who didn't live with him anymore? It wouldn't have made any sense. And I, to me, you know, I have two sisters and a brother to think about and their lives have been really messed up through all of this. My sisters are still really struggling with issues that were caused by this. I just didn't see it helping. And, you know, more than seven years has gone by, although, you know, there's no statute of limitation on murder, but I have no idea what happened in West Virginia. I really, I just know what did happen, but I didn't see any value in any of that, anything that was healing or helpful or therapeutic or anything else. And I have my own kids to think about. And, you know, whenever you mention our last name, I mean, it's just all they can do to, I feel bad for them, right? I mean, they've, they've had this, what I call the crow curse their whole life. 
I just realized that none of this helps anybody and it doesn't help any victims. It doesn't do anything. Turning him in while he was still alive, would that have prevented future violence from him, do you think? No, I just think it would have raised up other ugly issues that in really bad families where this stuff goes on, you always ask, well, why don't people talk about it? Why didn't you say something earlier where they say, you know, you just want it to go away. You just you, you just feel like you're jumping into a filthy bathtub and trying to get clean and all you're doing is rearranging the dirt. It can be very, very difficult. Is it worth it? And if so, why so? Where's your justice? What do you get? And oh, believe me, you will pay one hell of a price. So writing this book, while I imagine for you must have been very cathartic, was it difficult for, I know you didn't tell your mom, but for your wife or your your siblings, was that difficult for them to read about? Extremely. My siblings tried to talk me out of it. My wife tried to talk me out of it. My siblings made me change their first names, which is the only part that's not accurate. And since both sisters have married last names, you know, I figured they're safe. What's really interesting, no one wanted me to do it now that it's been extremely successful. And obviously, they come off as my heroes. They are. I mean, they lived through this with me. So the book now, it's like, oh, I'm really glad you did it. But believe me, no, no one wanted me to do this. No one. This has taken an emotional toll on you, obviously. What good do you see coming of it? I know you're getting a lot of feedback from people who have had similar upbringings, which is just terrible. And they are telling you how grateful they are that you have brought these types of abuses to light. So is that the gratification for you from all of this? It is. And, you know, when I get letters and I get a lot more of these than the negative, you made me understood I could tell my story. You made me understand it's not my fault. You made me understand I'm not a horrible person because I grew up in a horrible circumstance. When you grew up the way I did, things are coming at you 100 miles an hour, life and death every day. You're facing extraordinary situation where you have to read a person's face like my dad's in an instant and know what to do, how to avoid danger. And you have to understand that a person who grows up like that is broken. They don't like themselves. They don't like their story. They may even hate themselves. They don't know it. And they don't trust anybody. And they know that if they try to trust you, that you'll simply go to the person who hurts them and they'll hurt them more. What you have to understand is breaking a cycle like this is extraordinarily difficult. And most people do not. So tell me about the last days of your dad's life. When did this happen and how old was he? What happened? So dad died January 2nd, 2013. And the last two to four years, I was his legal guardian. I was his medical guardian. I talked to him every day. One night he thought he was going to die. He had a series of medical issues towards the end. And he thought he was going to die. And there were tubes all over him. He'd had these massive heart surgery. And he wrote, can you ever forgive me on a pad? And I said, I gave you, forgave you a long time ago, dad. You're my dad. And he smiled. But as soon as he got well, he turned mean again. I knew that any forgiveness or any kindness to me was situational. And the only reason he ever reached back to me is was the end of his life. He needed me and I didn't need him. And I was still okay with that. But I told him I was going to write this book and he got really angry. And I said, you know, I'm the only one of your four kids that calls you every day, looks after you every day, talks to you every day, keeps you good. If you want to cut me off, thank you. I can just get rid of all the BS right now. 
So you need to give this a lot of thought. So he called me back. He said, okay, but if I raise my hand in your face and tell you you can't talk about something, you have to stop. And I said, well, maybe yes, maybe no. Then I told him that I tracked down his accomplice, that I tracked down his the son of his accomplice, that I'd given the daughter of the son of his accomplice a full internship in my office, that I'd gone through the Freedom of Information Act to San Quentin, and I told him how you, dad, destroyed their dad's life. And I thought his head was going to pop off. And I said, you're not going to get away with no one knowing this, and you're sure as hell not going to get away with pretending to me that you didn't do this. And I will write this all down, and I will tell it exactly the way it happened. And he said, well, I'm an atheist. I don't care. And I said, I know you're an atheist. And it's not to get even. It's not because I'm keeping score. It's to tell people you can overcome even you as a father and come out of it and be okay. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Udigit Bhattacharji on the spy who couldn't spell. He's certainly got some delusions of grandeur and he thinks of himself, you know, he's got a fantasy running in his head in which he is like a 007 character who's so smart and who's who's so skilled at espionage, he thinks he can hoodwink the government. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.